Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 76 on New Zealand. The capitalist country is Wellington, and the name New Zealand actually comes from Dutch explorers that named this land after Zealand, which is a province in the Netherlands in the southwestern part because the Dutch were the first explorers to come here. In this country, there are actually more sheep than people in population. It's about a six to one ratio of sheep to people, and this has made New Zealand the number one producer of wool and mutton in the world. This country is also called Aotearoa, and the two main islands are Te Iki Amaui in the north, and the south island is called Te Wapo Namu, and they've developed a very different culture than the two, than each other throughout history. And then Wellington, which is the capital, is also the southernmost capital in the entire world. And Auckland has about 40% of the total population of New Zealand. A lot of New Zealand is very empty because of especially the South Island being very mountainous. And then another random fact just for fun is that New Zealand is actually as far away from Australia as Morocco is from London. So people tend to think that just because the way the map is skewed, at least the common map we see, that New Zealand is pretty close to Australia, but it's still over 2,000 kilometers away, which is a hike. And with that, that pretty much gets us to where we want to start. So I'm going to stop dilly-dallying. I'm going to let this play out, and we're just going to get right into it. So just wanted to say thank you all so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and this is New Zealand. Let's do this thing. Our origins here don't actually begin until the 12th century, because it is right around then that it is believed the first Polynesians arrived onto the land. These Polynesians would come from the east and would eventually develop into the Maori culture we know today. The island was completely uninhabited by humans before then. The main population there was these giant flightless birds called moa, and they would become very important to the Maori throughout their history and would eventually be hunted to extinction. So the Maori were originally fishers and hunters, in the area. There wasn't any trade and there wasn't any agriculture for a very long time. The main thing they did was hunt this giant moa bird, which is kind of the same family as the emu, but it's gigantic. It was standing at 12 feet tall and had a thicker neck and was very, very nutritious when you killed it. (laughs) So that's why the Maori hunted it down. And then eventually the Maori developed into a larger civilization that became more developed. It became a hereditary chiefdom that moved more inland, and this is where they started to expand into agriculture and started building their famous meeting houses, which are called Faranui. The craftsmanship here can be seen throughout the centuries as the more developed Maori get, the more developed and detailed these Faranui meeting houses become. And they're a big kind of cultural visiting spot you could see that are still around today. And they defined the culture for a long time there as the greatest craftsmen worked on the Faranui to honor the chief. There was infighting and an eventual trade and trade of agriculture within New Zealand up until the 1600s when the first European would arrive here. This would be Abel Tasman, who was a Dutch explorer that spotted the land in 1642. When he started to interact with the Maori, they actually attacked him. They killed four of his crew. So he ended up giving the bay where this interaction happened, the name Murderer's Bay, which has now been shifted to Golden Bay. It is on the northern tip of the southern island. And the main reason the Maori attacked is because they didn't know who these people were and they came on this giant ship. The Maori weren't playing these games that the rest of the world played when new people arrived. They just attacked and they said, yeah, we'll fight first, ask questions later, which definitely makes sense because the Europeans tended to not stay peaceful for long. 
So because of this event, there wouldn't be any interaction with the outside world for over 100 years. It wouldn't be until James Cook would arrive in this land in 1769. James Cook was a super famous navigator, explorer, captain for the British. And he ended up circumnavigating New Zealand. And he drew a really detailed and pretty accurate map of New Zealand after circumnavigating it. And he was traveling with a man named Joseph Banks, who was a major European naturalist. And he was the first European to witness the Maori Haka dance, which is the one that you would probably recognize from before rugby games that the Maori New Zealanders do before they play. And this haka dance is loud. It's very masculine. There's a lot of like bouncing your limbs off each other and sticking the tongue out and yelling. So this really frightened Joseph Banks. They haven't got any stuff like that in England. And from this point on, European influence would be common in the land. Then there was the event in 1809 called the Boyd Massacre, which saw European sailors on the Boyd ship killed and eaten by Maori in 1809. This is a pretty much confirmed story, as this was the older Maori, and is very separate from anything you could connect them to now. Even the Maori acknowledged this did happen, but it was 300 years ago. So, things change. Trade from the Europeans would breed the musket wars from 1807 to 1837. Some of the major chiefs that were Maori ended up gathering a lot of treasure and presents to give to the Europeans to actually get guns out of them. And then some of the older Maori clashes within the smaller sects and tribes within the greater Maori and Bella would start to be reignited into fights again. But now these chieftains that got guns started to wipe their opponents off the map because the muskets, although not the best weapon, were definitely effective against those that were using stone tools. And this conflict was made even more deadly by the European diseases that started to spread. It had only been a few hundred years since the Europeans had arrived, and so their diseases really started to spread heavily, and there was no resistance in the Maori genealogy to defend against it. So by this point, the population had dropped around 40% since the contact with Europeans began. Christian missionaries began launching missions into New Zealand to convert the people, and Christianity started to begin to spread, and this allowed the British to feel more comfortable in moving in, so British immigration started to grow as well. Then we would see the arrival of the man named William Hobson. He was a captain of a British fleet that sailed to New Zealand to protect the land from French incursion because throughout all the 1800s there was a lot of beef between the French and the English, and for many years before that too. Hobson ended up becoming the eventual governor of New Zealand, and he met with high-ranking chiefs in Maori lands so that he could create a treaty. This treaty would be the Treaty of Waitangi. This made New Zealand a possession of the British Empire officially with the consent of the Maori in 1840, but there was Maori terms used that were not properly translated, and this is where a lot of debate came up, where the English believed that they were getting the Maori to agree to give up sovereignty, but the word for sovereignty is not as easily translatable to the Maori language, so when the Maori said it, they thought it was a more partnership, so as opposed to them just giving up their rights and their rule to the British. So there was a lot of debate here, and it becomes things in the future. But this treaty ends up being signed by most of the chiefs, especially in the North Island, and this treaty also protected and regret and recognized the Maori lands, and it gave the British exclusive rights to purchase lands from the Maori. So, of course, the British purchased a lot, and this led to a lot of European migration, especially those from Ireland and the UK. 
And within a few years of the Waitangi Treaty being signed, laws were made that limited immigration to only white Europeans so that no one else would start to take labor away or take land up in New Zealand. And the mass amount of purchased land and a lot of the Maori losing areas that were their home and feeling that they were screwed a bit because they didn't really understand the treaty they signed, it led to the New Zealand Wars. This broke into many battles and smaller conflicts from 1845 to 1872. It pitted the Maori warriors against the British and any Maori allies they had made. And the North Island saw most of the fighting, and it was torn apart by it. Lots of shelling and gunfire happened across the land. People were killed up and down. And the Maori were actually able to prolong the war for a long time and win some major battles because of how good they were at guerrilla warfare. But in the end, the British were the victors, and the British began to confiscate more and more Maori land. During this time, though, the New Zealand Constitution Act of 1852 actually gave self-rule to New Zealand, and it also moved the capital from Auckland to Wellington so that they could keep a close eye on the South Island. And around this time, also, the fourth New Zealand Parliament was made, and it brought Maori citizens into the government officially. And then for the second half of the 1800s, there would be a lot of up and down for the country, but especially for the Maori. A lot of their land had been purchased by the Europeans, so now they were losing habitable land to live on. And diseases started to really hit the population even harder because the Maori still had not built up resistance to any of the diseases the Europeans brought, and there wasn't vaccines or medication going around yet. So a lot of the economy in New Zealand wasn't doing great, and that is when a man named Julius Vogel, who was treasurer and premier of New Zealand, actually started to come into greater power and want to influence the land. So in the late 1800s, he started to push for railroads and other major public work projects to be built so that there could be more British immigration. So he ended up overhauling the economic system so that more workers were employed, and he did this all on the basis that he believed New Zealand was really rich with resources and all that they needed to do was get a workforce out to go harvest them and go mining and all those things. So he got a lot of foreign investment and he used this foreign investment on public works projects to help the infrastructure. And this ended up making the country do pretty great until the 1880s when an economic depression hit, which lasted until 1895. But during this time, women's suffrage would actually be granted in 1893, making this the first nation in the world to allow women to vote before even any of the Western European nations. And a leader of this movement was, was a New Zealand citizen named Kate Shepard. And by this point, around 500,000 white European settlers had moved into New Zealand since 1840. Change in status occurred in 1907 when New Zealand became an autonomous dominion of the British Empire. And it would maintain this status of sorts for a really long time. And then we would see surrounding this the liberal era which lasted from 1891 to 1912. It was led by a man named John Balance, who started the era off with a lot of consistent chains. John Balance and the other politicians that followed him helped push a lot of policies that helped farmers get more official control of their lands. It built a lot of roads. It invested in newer technology that would actually allow for refrigeration. So now the country could ship meat, dairy, and eggs across the ocean to Britain. And all this helped the country's economy stabilize and get to a way better place. And rights for people started to come as well. Obviously, this was at the same time as women getting the right to vote, which happened here before anywhere else. So this was dubbed the liberal era for all the change it brought and all the reforms that went nationwide. National pride really started to grow in the late 1800s as New Zealand was now starting to develop its own culture removed from Britain. And success in some sports, such as rugby, brought an early sense of pride. And this was doubled 
by New Zealand's participation in war. They ended up supporting the British in the South African War from 1899 to 1902. And the people here proved to be really formidable fighters, especially in guerrilla warfare. And the pride from being such great fighters grew throughout the two world wars and more and more pride would grow. And in those wars, starting with the First World War, Maori citizens fought right alongside the European New Zealanders and served with distinction. At the time, New Zealand had a population of maybe one million. So they actually sent 100,000 people to go fight, which is insane because no country sends anywhere near 10% of its population to go fight in a war. So this is really a lot. And this is where they get the name the Kiwis because, one, it was kind of like a trench war joke between the allies that these people were Kiwis that came from this land literally down under and they were famous for the little Kiwi bird. And it kind of was just a nickname that stuck really well because of how resilient and crafty and kind of off kilter the New Zealand people are. So this was a name they were given and it just stuck. So Kiwis is not an offensive term, not to the New Zealanders at all. Call a New Zealander a Kiwi. They're going to be very much like, Oh, that's us. Um, so I will say that throughout this podcast. Um, and the Kiwis were actually really important to the war, especially in the Battle of Gallipoli, which happened in Turkey. And after World War One, New Zealand went to the actual peace conferences and ended up signing the Treaty of Versailles themselves. This actually helped the nation gain more sovereignty because it was signing itself up to be a member of the League of Nations and signed as part of the people that contributed to the end of the war separately from the United Kingdom. So it wasn't just doing this all under the branch of the UK. It was their own nation's decision as well. Then World War II occurred, and the Maori again served with distinction. The British were struggling in the Mediterranean, so the United States ended up being the ones to protect New Zealand from Imperial Japan. And this opened the eyes of New Zealand because the inability of Britain to protect Singapore became really clear to them, and they saw, well, if they can't protect Singapore, which is in this region of the world close to Asia, how would they ever protect us, who's on the other side of the world, speaking from New Zealand's perspective? At so they actually started to question Britain and the agreement they had made all those years ago. And this led to a status change where after this led to an official status change, which came at the culmination of things that had been going since the interwar period. Back in 1931, the statue of Westminster recognized the autonomy of New Zealand's government separate from the United Kingdom and Great Britain. And then after World War II in 1947, it was made official when the Statue of Westminster Adoption Act fully allowed New Zealand to interact with other nations. Thus, it took full control of their own foreign policy. So now they have their own military, internal government, external government, foreign policy, and trade affairs. So now the ownership of Britain over New Zealand is now just purely a name and relies purely on that Commonwealth status rather than actually controlling anything. So the head of state for New Zealand would remain to be whoever's the head of the royal family in Britain, but now anything that was important was entirely managed by New Zealand. And when this happened, this also ended that racial limit on immigrants that was imposed years ago, where only white Europeans were allowed to come into the land. Now, this was abolished and immigrants of all sorts could start to come in. After this, Britain also placed Tokelau, Nui, and the Cook Islands under the jurisdiction of New Zealand. And things were interesting because Tokelau was really, really small, so it became a full dependency under New Zealand because there was only around 2,000 people there, and especially at this time there was even less, so they had no desire to be fully independent. And the other two, Nui and the Cook Islands, took independent status under New Zealand, which is kind of similar to what New Zealand has under Britain, which is they are fully independent and are they, and are in full control of their own 
government and constitution and all that, but they still have their overall status held by New Zealand. Same with New Zealand to Britain. Then the ANZUS Treaty was signed in 1951, which guaranteed the protection of New Zealand under the United States. It was signed between the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. And this is still in place today, but there are still some tensions over it because New Zealand has become a country that is kind of the face of nuclear neutrality. Throughout all the Cold War and beyond, they've maintained neutrality in any nuclear affairs. They don't want nukes being stored on there. They don't want to develop nukes. So they're staying away from that whole thing. And this has caused tension because, of course, the U.S. is not nuclear neutral. Post-World War II, other things develop. New Zealand would spend a lot of the rest of the century adjusting its economy and trying to build a reputation as its own entity. Policies would go up and down. The economy would fluctuate. But after a lot of time from new policies coming in that increased exportation of their goods, foreign investors, and a lot of abstinence from war, the country really started to grow, and it became the very developed nation we see today. And that would get us closer to the very modern age where the current prime minister was the minister of health during the COVID pandemic, and his policy led a full shutdown for New Zealand that limited the spread of COVID-19 really hard and meant no one was coming in and out of the country and that there was a really really strict lockdown for people within the country that lasted for a few months and because of this by the end of the pandemic only 2,000 people had ever been infected in New Zealand and only 25 people died so he was very highly regarded for this and this name and this man is Chris Hipkins who ended up becoming prime minister in January of this year because a former prime minister actually stepped down because of the way she was handling COVID and a lot of the pressure from that. And the thing that was really bad in 2019, New Zealand found itself once again in the global view because on March 15th of this year, an Australian white supremacist recorded himself attacking two mosques and killing 50 people inside each one. And this attack enraged New Zealand citizens and calls for gun reform became really, really wide, but it's a very similar issue to the U.S. where gun ownership here is really high. It's nowhere near as high as the U.S., but around one in four people here actually do own a gun, and it's like four million people to one million guns, something like that, and that's a lot, especially compared to the rest of the world. So there's been a lot of back and forth, but both sides are very loud in wanting what they want. Some wanting things to say the same and keep their guns, and others want to change the system entirely. And before we get to the end, I want to talk about Maori culture, which is still very alive today, even after centuries of European influence and confiscation of their lands. The most famous thing we see today is the haka, which is a traditional dance done by the Maori for many different reasons. The main thing we associate it with is kind of intimidation before sporting events, but that's not the only reason it's used. It's also used to celebrate major events like graduations, weddings, birthdays, celebrate people coming together. It's a lot more than just some intimidation thing. It's very deep to the Maori people, and it's a coming-of-age thing. When a boy hits a certain age, they'll do the haka. When a girl hits a certain age, they'll do the haka to celebrate her. Um, certain versions of the haka are for only men to do, and then there's other versions that have different names that include more people that have their own roles. But it's famous across the islands and is very sacred to them. There are also tattoos that are especially unique to this area, kind of seen throughout a lot of Polynesia, but the ones here are called 
kiritui, which are the body tattoos. They kind of represent coming of age and sometimes represent status. And they are completely unique to any tattoo you would see on anyone because there's no two that are the same because it tells the story of the person it's on. So those big chest tattoos and stuff you might see on wrestlers, even though they are Samoan, it's very similar to the ones you see here in New Zealand. And the Maori tell the life story on the arm and bicep and pectoral muscle of men. And then on the back, the left side of the body represents the father's heritage and history, and the right side of the body is the same for the mother. So the body is a canvas to tell the story through these tattoos. And then there's also another kind of tattoo called a taimoko, called a tamoko, and they are face tattoos that also have extreme detail, and they are based on rank, so some chieftains will have a lot of tattoos and be very special, and then some are less detailed, some are markings for the wife, different things of that sort. After all that, I guess that's to the present, where New Zealand is one of the most developed nations in the world. It has a very high ranking on the Human Development Index. And it's been decades of peace in this country, and there's only a few internal affairs that really need help. There is outcries by the Maori to have the land they remain with to be protected, and there's movements to stop certain public work projects from happening on what is sacred ground. But the direction those arguments and conflicts will go is anyone's guess. But overall, New Zealand is in a good place, and it's a happy place a lot of people are starting to accept. And even though it has a smaller population than most other nations in the world, it is growing and things are going pretty well. And that gets us to the end where I always like to leave it with kind of a takeaway or a mindset. And with New Zealand, that is always try to punch above your weight class. And I mean that in the metaphorical sense, because if you do that in an actual fight, you might get your head rocked. New Zealand has become famous for this quote-unquote punching above its weight class and doing more than you'd expect it to. New Zealand is population-wise a small country. It has barely 5 million people. It is on the other side of the world than Europe, the United States, and most of the other nations in the world, and it's even far from Australia, which is already considered the land down under. But this nation has made itself felt in two of the biggest conflicts in the world, World War I and World War II. It's become a huge aid to the British and their development. New Zealand has established a international trade network and has done very well to maintain it. It's a very liberal nation that has given a lot of rights to its people, its women, all sorts of things like that. And all of that has been done despite its small population, its isolation from the rest of the world. And because of that, it is regarded as a country that quote-unquote punches above its weight. I say you should do the same because a lot of people get caught up in their situation or their size or their this, their that, and it holds them back from things. How many times have you heard, oh, like, heard or said, that girl's out of my league? Or, oh, I don't know, like that seems too hard for me. That's fine to admit. Sometimes things can be too hard for you, but nothing should be inherently not yours or not yours to at least attempt just because of who you are. That is something that's really limiting, and that's a limiting mindset. That's the opposite of an abundance mindset, which you'll hear a lot in the self-development space and the entrepreneur space where you want an abundance mindset to increase what you're bringing in. You're putting out a lot, and you're getting a lot back, as opposed to putting in a little and getting a little out vice versa. So in this case, I say punch above your weight class. If there's a job that seems like you might not get it, there's a school that you really want to apply to, but you don't know if you'll get it, just apply because the worst that happens is a no. It's the same with, I'm speaking from a man's perspective, it's the same with shooting your shot with a girl. This girl could be the most beautiful girl you've ever seen. The worst thing she will say to you if you approach her is no, and she's not going to ruin your life. There's nothing that you approaching this person, guy, girl, or anything that you may think is extremely out of your league. The worst they say is no. You go up to them, approach them, 
tell them how you feel about them, tell them what you observed about them in a positive sense and respectfully. And the worst they say is no, you accept that no, you move on. But within 10 minutes, if you let yourself, you'll forget about it and so will she or he. So that can be applied in a lot of areas where you aren't out of anyone's league and no one is below your league or above your league. We're all just people. And when it comes to the expectations you have for yourself, they're entirely what you have for yourself because people can expect things of you. They can expect big things, expect small things. It's entirely up to you and your actions that you take that decide what actually happens. So with that, I say you should very heavily consider the fact that since it's all on you and it's all up to you, who's to stop you from doing really big things? Who's to stop you from pursuing this incredible person that you think is out of your league? Who's to stop you from pursuing this incredible school or career that you think is exclusive and maybe not for someone like you but it's something you want just try and put the effort in and see what happens because the only thing really holding you back is yourself and if you give people the results they want and show them who you are they don't really have the right to reject you so and especially the work that comes from stretching for big things that may be quote-unquote out of your league or out of your weight class you'll get a level of development and confidence from growing that will make you more attractive will make you more centered within yourself so the net benefit from doing this is and by this i mean really stretching yourself and reaching for the stars as they say is long-term benefit internally and externally in your life so just like new zealand punch above your weight class because i promise you the worst thing that happens is you will get a setback that will just push you forward in the future that's it so do it take the risk and you got this man all right so with that, that pretty much gets us to the end. And New Zealand was super fun. When I saw it come up on the list I was doing next, after doing Ireland, I was really excited. I haven't been in Oceania in forever. And it's a fun one, man. New Zealand's a very unique country. The population's interesting. The history with the Maori is so much fun. Their culture is very prominent today. And it's one of the coolest ones that we get to see as outsiders and then learn about by diving in. And I love it. So just going to wrap it up here and say thank you all so much for watching and i hope you got something out of that be it entertainment some history facts or something from the takeaway and yeah just glad you guys are here so one more time my name is reese garlinski this is young history and that was new zealand you guys have a good one